Amen. Those are some of the very last words in the Bible. Uh, John in Revelation uh, has a vision of the end of days, and his vision concludes with heaven coming down to earth. And so the only thing he has left to say is, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm looking forward to what uh, the Lord has for us um, tonight and in the upcoming weeks as we kind of look through some things in the book of James. My wife will tell you James is her favorite book, and I'm sure, um, you know, this is a book that's commonly studied, and maybe you've been through it several times, but um, uh, I believe the Lord will maybe have some, have some stuff for us to learn in it. So uh, let, let's pray together as we continue tonight. Father, thank you for your word. We do pray, come Lord Jesus. 2,000 years, Lord, is a long time to wait for you. But your word says that you tarry, not wishing, Lord, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to be like the wise virgins, Lord, who were prepared, ready, waiting for you when you come. And we pray now, Lord, that as we consider the book of James in this uh, short, brief section on joy and suffering, Lord, I I pray uh, as many have suffered, are suffering, will suffer in the future, Lord, I pray that you would help us to think clearly, biblically, Lord, and have the hope in the midst of our suffering that only you can have. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Uh, sufferings some can be hard to talk about sometimes, but at the same time, everybody suffers in one way or another. Some more than others. And um, oftentimes, suffering is re- relative. We suffer deeply and in many ways here, but other people in other parts of the world and other times in history have suffered really more than we can imagine. Uh, Many people have thought about suffering and viewed it as a reason to not believe in God. How could God exist with all this suffering in the world? But obviously that's not how the Bible at all looks at suffering. The Bible understands that all suffering, even not just relational suffering and things like that, but even physical suffering, disease, is ultimately a result of sin. And God is working to renew the world through it. But nevertheless, while we still live in a sinful world, we will still suffer. But if we know Jesus Christ, we don't suffer like the world suffers. We suffer differently, in a different way, because we have different values, different loves, different hopes that the world just cannot have. Fanny Crosby, famous hymn writer, She's blind. This is what Fanny Crosby once said. If I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind. For when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. You see, we who know Christ, we don't, we suffer, but we don't suffer like everybody else. 
we have a different, a real, a sure hope in Christ. So if you have a Bible um, and you're able and willing, would you please stand with me now as we read the first four verses of the book of James, uh, 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 James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word of God may be seated. So we're just going to look at particularly these, these uh, three verses, verses 2 through 4. And we're just going to kind of just walk through them briefly and kind of take a, uh, uh, a zoomed out view, if you will, a whole Bible view of the scripture uh, concerning uh, suffering. And in verse 2 there, what James says is he says, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. Now, this, this has confused some. Um, and it, for some, it doesn't seem realistic, you know, or helpful for just someone to say, count it all joy when you face trials of different, of various kinds. But it's important to note, well, I mean, let's ask ourselves, what, does, what is James actually, actually saying when he says to count it all joy in the midst of your trials? Well, I don't think he means kind of like this glib happiness, right? I don't think he means that because if that's a general principle for the Christian life, lots of Christians got it wrong. The Bible says Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I don't think James is telling us we're supposed to have this kind of glib, superficial, grinning, smiling happiness in the midst of our trials. But he is saying that we are to have a joy, a deep-rooted, deep-seated, foundational joy that goes to the very, that's at the very depths and lies at the very bottom of our sorrows. So I don't think James is saying that we don't or shouldn't grieve deeply over loss or over pain that we experience. Rather, he's saying that we as Christians do not ultimately Go to, we do not ultimately give in to despair like many will. Why? Because we have a hope. We have a joy. One of the fam- most famous verses in the Bible, Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So, If you go to Romans 8 and you look in the context, Paul is talking about the context of suffering. He just got finished talking about how the creation itself groans that with, with the birth pains, waiting eagerly for the revealing, he says, of the sons of God, which is a reference to the the resurrection of the dead. And so he 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 has in view suffering here, and he is saying that all things Work together for your good. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. That's what God is saying. That's what the Bible is saying. The question is, is in our time of trial, will we believe that? 
when, when we're in the crucible, when the heat is on, will we be able to turn to that verse and have the faith to say, that is true. That somehow, in a way that I might not understand or in a way that I cannot yet see, God is working. Not just working, but he's working for my good. In my trial, in my suffering. Because that's what it says. All things work together for good. Not just blessings, but your sufferings work together for good. And this, uh, by the way, uh, is what faith is in the Bible. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So as we've talked about before, the biblical view of faith is it's not some kind of intellectual leap in the dark. It's something totally different. It's, 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 not, just, it's not just like you're, you're hoping, well, I just have faith that it's going to happen. You know, like, it's not just some kind of like vague hope. It's, a, it's, a, it's an assurance. That's what it says. It's an assurance. It's a conviction. Faith is saying not, I merely hope that it happens. I'm not sure that it will. Faith is saying, I know that there is a faithful God. I know that he will keep his promise. I know that in the midst of my suffering, all things are working together for good. It's not, it's not wishful thinking. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I can't see it yet, but I know it's coming. That is faith. And in our suffering, it requires faith because we cannot yet see in many trials that we face, we will not be able to see how this can work for any good. And that's a lot of people in a lot of suffering. And a lot of people have turned away from God for that very reason. They say, they say I cannot see how God could possibly work this for good. That's because you can't see like God sees. And this is where the relational trust comes in. That's what faith is. It's not just, again, it's not just some kind of blind belief in facts. Faith in the Bible is a relational trust in a person. If you, have, if, if you know someone in your life that you are deeply close with and you know is super trustworthy, and if they told you something, you know that it's going to happen, and they, t- and they tell you something, you say, I don't know how that's going to happen, but they told me it will. I trust them. That's what our relationship with God is like. That's what our relationship, our, our, tr- our faith in God is like, is that because he has proven himself trustworthy through countless ages, we know that he will work all things together for good. Some way, some how. And this is, and this really does, it has to change the way that we endure in suffering. And we see this especially in the Apostle Paul. Paul suffered a lot. Everywhere he went, people were trying to kill him. In the book of Galatians, we find out that he had some kind of physical ailment. We don't know what it was. I think the thorn in his flesh uh, in, in Corinthians, I, I think it was a physical ailment. You know what God told him? I'm not going to take it away. I'm not going to take it away. Why? Because to keep him humble. 
God is working all things for our good. Sometimes we need bad things for our good. The Bible says. Listen to what Paul has to say about his sufferings as an apostle of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Just look at that last verse there. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Do you have a category in your mind for what Paul's talking about? Can Can you wrap your brain around that? Can you think about it? Is there a place in your understanding... And in, 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 in the way, in, 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 in the, in the way, in manner in which we go about our lives as Christians, as believers in Christ, is there a capacity? Is there, a, is there a category in our thinking for us to be people who are sorrowful and yet at the same time rejoicing? We better have that category because Paul had it because the Bible says we ought to have it. That there is a true and deep in the midst of sorrow and pain and suffering, there is a real, not a fake, not a made up, not a superficial, there is a real rejoicing that we can have because our sufferings are working for something greater in the end than if we've never suffered at all. And if you can believe that, it will change the way you suffer. Paul suffered riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, dishonor, slander, treated as imposters, unknown, dying, yet behold, we live punished, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich. Isn't that what it said of Jesus? That he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich? And for Paul, what was that? Though he was earthly poor, is no pro- that didn't matter to him because he was making many rich. Let me tell you something. Paul's rich now. He's rich. And so the future hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the reward of our suffering changes the way we suffer. We can rejoice in our suffering. This gives us an incredible biblical category of rejoicing in the midst of sorrow. And this changes, hear me now, this doesn't just change the way we endure suffering. That is, suffering that just comes upon us unbidden. But it also creates another category for us. And that is the Christian choosing to suffer. For the sake of Christ. 
You remember the book of Acts? The apostle Paul was going to Jerusalem. And he, he got back into, he got back to uh, Israel. And the prophet Agabus came up and took off Paul's belt and tied his, wrapped around his hands. And he said, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. What did Paul do? I'm going. So think about that for a minute. It's not just that, it's not just that happenstance brought a lot of suffering onto Paul, though it did. But this is something different. This is a, this is a whole different category. Paul chose to suffer. He went knowing what it would cost him. Why? For the sake of Christ. And for the sake of the gospel. Romans 8, 18. Why, how could Paul do this? He says, I consider, this is how, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, the glory that we will receive on the last day when we receive our resurrection bodies, when we, are, when we give an account for all things that we have done in the body, for good or for bad, when we stand before the risen Lord Jesus in all his glory and are made new and are saved to sin no more and are ushered into a world without sin and when we stand before God and, he, and, and in that last day receive the commendation of Jesus Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul says all of that is so great that the greatest suffering that can possibly be endured in this life isn't worth comparing to it. I want you to think about that for a second because there's been a lot of suffering. There's been a lot of suffering. Some of you have suffered. You have endured pain that you didn't think you would be able to, to live through. Greater pain than you thought was possible to experience and it's happening right now all over the world. The, 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 I mean, just think about the evils that have happened in the world. The Holocaust. 60 plus million babies murdered in America over the past six, seven decades. The suffering in this world is so great. And so what Paul is not doing is he's not minimizing the reality and the, the, great, the magnitude of suffering. But what he is saying is that as great as the suffering is, so much greater is the glory of Christ that it is nothing. How glory, how, how great is the glory of Christ that the Holocaust will be as nothing before it. I want you to think about that. When the glory of your Christ is that great, you not only endure suffering, but you can run to it for the sake of Christ and his gospel. That's what we are called to do. Why? Because that's what Christ did. Christ's whole purpose, the purpose, the reason that Christ came was to die. And if we follow him, that's what he said the Christian life is, a death 
to self. And it frees us from the grip of the things of this world so that we can run to suffering for the sake of Christ. And that's what, that's what Christians have, have done all throughout 2,000 years of Christian history. And that's what has, that's what has, that's, that's what has made a, a, a Jewish carpenter in an obscure place in the Middle East the most important man who ever lived. Is that Christians throughout history have said, I will not offer incense to Caesar. I will, I will be eaten alive by animals in the games. I will let you tar me and strap me to a pole and lock me on fire because I will not deny my Christ. And they would choose suffering for the sake of Christ. And it has and is changing the world. And so we need a category for this. Sorrowful. Yet always rejoicing. So it's important to note here that the Christian life, contrary to what some people will tell you, is not a promise of worldly blessing or even present day happiness. Let me tell you something. If they're on TV, I'm just going to say it. Don't believe them. Don't watch Joel Osteen. I'm telling you. He has no category for sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He, has, he doesn't have one. The Bible has one. Jesus, if the prosperity gospel is true, if God blesses your obedience, Jesus would have been the most blessed person in the world. What happened to Jesus? He was shamefully treated. He was falsely accused. He was capitally punished, even though he committed no crime. And he died penniless. Literally, the only thing he owned was on his back, and they gambled for that. The Christian life is not a promise of happiness in this world. It's a promise of unspeakable joy forever in the next. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says this. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeit his soul? Paul says... I will count everything this world can give me as rubbish. And I will gladly share in the sufferings of Christ if I will attain the resurrection from the dead. Life everlasting. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said something very fascinating if you remember. Paul said, if the dead are not raised... We who are in Christ are most of all to be pitied. Why did Paul say that? Because Paul lived a life in which he chose suffering for the sake of Christ. 
So if he, if, Christ, if the dead are not raised, if the Christians have no hope, he has literally wasted his life. Because he chose about the hardest way you could possibly live. John Piper put it like this. The call of Christ is a call to live a life of sacrifice and loss and suffering. A life that would be foolish to live if there were no resurrection from the dead. This is a conscious choice for Paul. Listen to his protest. If the dead are not raised, why am I in danger in every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. This is what Paul has chosen. He protests because he does not have to live this way. He chooses it. In danger every hour, dying every day. This is why he says he should be pitied if there is no resurrection from the dead. He chose a path that leads to trouble and pain virtually every day of his life. And this is not new. This has, always been, this has always been the way of faith for the follower of Jesus Christ. Consider Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about Moses. It says, by faith, uh, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What? Look, look at the word. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. This is astounding when you think about it. The Bible, over and over, it tells us, it tells us, it tells us that there is a hope, that there is a reward, that there is glory for those who trust in Christ. And it's only if you believe that can you do this. Matthew 13, one of my absolute favorite verses. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, look at that. <laughs> then in his joy, what does he do? He sells all that he has and buys that field. Do you see what Jesus is saying? It's beautiful. No one can say it better. Je- Je- The kingdom of heaven, this is what it's like. It's a treasure. It's a treasure. Think about that. It's a treasure. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure. You want heaven? You want treasure? You want to be wealthy? The the Bible doesn't tell you not to pursue that. Jesus encourages you. You want to be happy? Let me tell you how. There's a treasure that can be gained. But guess what? There's a caveat to that. It's going to cost you everything. But guess what? The value of the treasure is so great that even if you had to sell everything you own and be penniless to have it, you're infinitely better off. It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Chad, sell everything that you have, and I'll give you a hundred billion trillion dollars. Okay. Okay. Chad, sell everything that you have, and I'll give you eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a home prepared in heaven by Jesus Christ himself for you, seated at the right hand of God the Father to reign on the earth with him forever. Okay. I'm in. It's just going to cost you everything. But who cares? 
Who cares? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up that in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's when you understand this that you see, you can understand what James is saying. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Next, <laughs> note what James says here. Count it all joy when you face trials of what kind? Of various kinds. Of various kinds. James feels no need to be specific because there are no exceptions. Now this... <laughs> it's tempting. When, when we're in the midst of a trial, and even sometimes great and unbearable trials, it's tempting to say, you know, this just doesn't apply to me. It's, my suffering is too great. But that's not what James says. He says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, all kinds, any kinds. It doesn't matter what kind. No kind of trial is so great that in which, if you have Christ, you cannot count it joy. There's no trial like that. It always applies to us. It always applies to you. Financial struggles, family relational struggles, health, sickness, disease, loss of a loved one, victim of a crime or injustice. It doesn't matter. We cannot say this does not apply to me. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Because the hope of Christ doesn't change regardless of your circumstances. And why, why are we to be joyful in suffering? We've talked about it at length already, but what does James talk about here? He says, he says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This word testing, when he says the testing of your faith, it is a word that it commonly refers to the refining process of precious metals. This is how it's used in the Bible. In 1 Peter 1.7 it says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Psalms 12.6, um, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says this. It uses that same word. It says, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. When James says that the, your faith is the testing of your faith, he's not just talking about like you sit down and take an exam and, and it sees, it, it, it sees the, the, the capacity of your faith. It's not exactly that. Rather, it, it's the act of the testing itself that both proves that both proves what your faith is but it also at the same time it makes your faith stronger right when you heat a gold in the furnace it both reveals if it, if it melts at the right temperature you know that it's pure gold but not only does the heating process tell you that it's gold but it also makes the gold purer at the same time and that's what James is talking about when he's talking about the testing of your faith. That word is associated with the, the, the refining of precious metals. When, when, when we're tested, God is both seeing what's inside of us and he is making us stronger. It's like, it's like when you go to the gym. All right? You have to 
you strain your muscles, right? You strain your muscles, but the result... And so, for example, you may, you may test your muscles to see how strong you are, right? But the interesting thing is, is that at the same time as you are exerting your, your muscles in that force, you not only see how strong you are, but you're also making yourself stronger. And that's what James says the trials are doing. And so in what ways does... He says, the testing of your face produce, produces steadfastness. We could, we could translate that endurance or perseverance. As you are tested, it makes you stronger. It, it makes you endure. It reveals the faith that you have, and it makes you endure. And he says that the steadfastness, he says, let it have its full effect, that it may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other ways, what, we, what James is saying is that, it, is, is that testing, it is the endurance in the testing. It is, it is remaining in the crucible in the midst of the fire. That the dross rises to the top so that God can take it out of our lives. So in what ways then does endurance through trials change us? Well, Paul says basically the exact same thing in Romans chapter 3. So we're going to look at him to see exactly how endurance through trials changes us. Romans 5 verse 3. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering, again, produces endurance. Same word. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So let's just look at this briefly here. Paul says that endurance in our suffering produces character. The word character here can be translated uh, as proof. It's a similar idea to this testing. Um, you know, sometimes when we, you know, someone says they can do something, you know, kind of outlandish, we'll say, prove it. Prove it. Proof that you can do it. Well, this idea of proof, what Paul is getting at here, is that endurance in, trial, in, in trials gives us, uh, you, uh, some translations translate it, tested genuineness, proof, validity, proven worth, or tested, tested genuineness of character. As we endure in trials, as we endure in trials, we become refined and who we are in Christ becomes stronger and our character becomes proven. It becomes real. It becomes solid. Sometimes we don't even know what's inside of us in Christ until we go through a trial and we see God strengthen us and we see God uphold us and it strengthens our faith. It strengthens our character. It makes us more holy, right? Because remember one of the reasons God refused to take away Paul's thorn it was to make him holy so he wouldn't grow proud. And as God is working that uh, in us, and it, 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 it strengthens us, it gives us proven character. It gives proof of who we are and proof that God is at work in us. Proven character. And so you, we, we see the connection here between this idea of proof and character. You see, some people, and you, you hear this actually all the time, somebody you know, at work or at school or somewhere else, they'll have an outburst, an angry outburst. They'll say something, 
And everyone's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that. And then later, they say, what do they say? That wasn't me. It wasn't me. They just, they pushed the right buttons, okay? They just, that person brings that out of me, but that's not who I am. The Bible says the exact opposite. Did you know that? We say, you see, we say when we're squeezed, when we're in the trial, when we're tested, when we're tempted, we say how we behave, we say, oh, that's not me. But the Bible says it's exactly when you squeeze the sponge that you see who it is comes out. The, Jesus said it's not, it's not what goes into a man, but what comes out of a man that tells you what's in his heart. It is who you are at your worst moments, not your best. It, that, that's who you are. You see it? Anybody can put on a face and be nice when, when everything's going well. That's not who you are. Anybody can do that. Oh, it's when you squeezed. That's who you are comes out. That's why when a Christian endures in suffering and yet maintains their character, maintains their honor, maintains their integrity in the face of trial, that's when the world takes notice. Not when you're just nice when everyone's doing well. Anybody can do that. But when it's when Caesar says, I'm going to feed you to the beast in the games, and you say, I will not deny my Christ, that the world sees who you really are, that your character is finally, truly proven. And that's when they begin to take notice. Right? The great need for the day of the day is people of character, people who are mature, Godly, constant, immovable, knowledgeable in the scriptures, the same person in public and in private. When, you, when they're squeezed, gold comes out, not filth. Don't you want to be like that? I want to share this story. It just popped in my head. It's not in my notes, but I just feel like it's worth sharing because I just heard it yesterday, last night. Lewis Miller, pastor of Grace Baptist Church, told, shared this story with us last night. He said that he was riding, he, he uh, was leading a horse. He's got a horse, a daughter. His daughter was riding the horse, his relatively new horse. He was leading the horse with the bridle in this, in this field of their neighbors. And the lady drove up and says, do you know who owns this field? He says, no. He said, I know who owns this field. You want to get out of here. And so he says, okay. So he'd be walking out the field. Well, then not long after that, man comes up in his tractor, chasing him down with his tractor. And Lewis remained calm, just led his daughter out, just said, don't look back. We're just going to go. We're going to go home. A few days later, that woman, turns out that woman who, who said, I know the man who owns this field, was his wife. And her and the man are in the car, and they pull up in the house, and they say, do, do you have a daughter and do you own a horse? We're looking for them. And he said, that's me. And the man said, you were so calm when you did that. I had to come. I, I, I've been looking all over the neighborhood. I had to come. I want to apologize to you. By the way, two days later, that man was shot and killed. It's who you are when you're squeezed. 
that shows who you really are, that people really see and take notice that there's Christ in you. When you're tested in this way, Paul says, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The more you endure under trial, the more refined, as it were, your gold is, your life becomes. The more you feel God's power at work in you because you know that he's changing you, that he's making you holier than you were the day before, and the day before, and the day before. And, and as you feel God at work in you in the midst of your suffering, and as you feel God hold you up in the midst of your trial, and him, and him refine your character and who you are, the more you feel God work in your life and strengthen you in the midst of your sorrow, the more hopeful you become. Why is that? Because you know God's working. Because he carried you through this, so guess what? He's going to carry you through the next thing. Because he refined you through this, so guess what? He's going to refine you through the next thing. Because if he has been faithful through this, this, and this, and this, certainly he's going to be faithful in the end. To get you all the way through to the end, to the resurrection of the dead. And we all must attain that because Jesus says, it's only he who endures to the end who will be saved. But the more that you endure... And the more that you are changed in your endurance, refined, made pure and holy, the more and more hopeful you become. That he's at work, that he's going to carry you through, that he will see you, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. In the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul concludes by saying, that hope doesn't put us to shame. If you set your hope in Jesus, you won't be put to shame. Right? Some people huh, shouldn't put your hope in them. They're going to put you to shame. They're going to let you down. Stock market, it could put you to shame. Jesus Christ, he's never going to put you to shame. You put your hope in him, you can bank on it. People may scowl at you. People may spit on your face. Everybody hated Paul. He was shameful in the eyes of man. He was not much to look at. The Jews wanted to kill him. Shameful person in the eyes of the world. He won't be put to shame. Why? Because Paul says, <laughs> Paul says one day we're going to judge angels. Paul says the apostles are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. The people who scowled at him, who spit in his face, are going to grovel at his feet. You put your hope in Christ, you will never be put to shame. Conclude with this verse. 2 Corinthians 4.16 So we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporal, fleeting. They don't last, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
And if you look to those things, you'll never be put to shame. If you look to those things, it'll change the way you suffer. For God and for Christ. Because great is the reward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.